You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 76, The Black Napoleon. Thanks for joining me. Before we get started, I'll remind you once again that you can listen to this and all future episodes ad-free by pledging at least $2 a month on Patreon.com. We left off last time in the late summer of 1793, almost exactly two years since the outbreak of the Great Slave Rebellion. It had been two years of bloody chaos, but for the formerly enslaved majority of the country, it had also been two years of hope. The rebellion had given them a taste of freedom, and a chance, however slim, to make that freedom permanent. That dream came much closer to fruition on August 29, 1793, when Commissioner Leger Felicité Sontenax issued a proclamation abolishing slavery. Most history books list this as the date slavery ended in Haiti, but in fact, Sontenax's proclamation only applied to his area of jurisdiction in the north. It took several months for it to be extended across the entire colony. When we last left Toussaint Louverture, he was riding high after his successful offensive through central Haiti. He now had somewhere around 4,000 men under his command, and friend and foe alike recognized him as one of the most effective rebel commanders. However, behind the scenes, not all was well. A rift had developed within the rebel leadership between pro-Spanish generals like Georges Biassou and Jean-François Papillon, Louverture's superiors, and men like Toussaint, who believed the Spanish alliance was only a means to the much greater end of total liberation. By 1793, Jean-François had turned against Louverture. He tried to have Toussaint arrested, and there were even low-level skirmishes between their troops. It seems the only thing preventing open warfare was the will of Georges Biassou, Louverture's immediate superior, who shielded him from the worst of Jean-François's wrath. However, that changed in the summer of 1793. Either Biassou changed his mind, or Jean-François finally convinced him that something had to be done about this upstart general. Biassou ordered his men to perpetrate a false flag attack, to make it look like Toussaint and his army had turned against the rebellion. Yes, sometimes the conspiracy theorists are right, and false flag attacks actually do occur in real life. The plan worked, and rebel forces prepared an ambush to kill Toussaint and his leading officers. They were nearly successful. For once, Toussaint was caught off guard, and walked right into the trap. Several members of his staff were killed, including one of his brothers. But the general himself escaped. In the wake of the ambush, Toussaint understandably renounced his loyalty to Biassou and Jean-François, declaring he and his 4,000 troops independent from their command. He proved his point in dramatic fashion, ordering his men to gun down the local Spanish garrison as they left church after mass one Sunday. Louverture was a pious Catholic, but this was war. 
Amazingly, the Spanish governor responded to this provocation by writing Toussaint a letter, asking him if he had switched sides. Toussaint had the guts to respond that, no, he hadn't. He assured the governor that this was a lie spread by the English. It must have been quite a letter because the governor believed him. For months, Louverture and his men continued to receive pay and supplies from the Spanish, even after mowing down Spanish troops in cold blood. Now that Louverture was free of his allegiance to Spain, and France had adopted the total emancipation policy which Toussaint had always advocated, the next move was obvious. The stage was set for some kind of détente between Louverture and the Republicans. But before we get into that story, I thought it would be a good idea to zoom out and look at the broader military situation in Haiti in mid-1793. By this point, the French colonial government hardly controlled any territory, just a few enclaves around the ports of the north and a small sliver of mostly rural and poor countryside in the south. Many white and mixed-race colonists were defecting from the Republic and swearing allegiance to Britain and Spain. The French regulars were some of the best troops on the island, but by this point there were probably fewer than 10,000 of them scattered all over Haiti. These troops were supposed to be supplemented by local militias, but with so many colonists defecting, it was increasingly difficult for the French to find recruits. Most of the interior of the country was controlled by the rebel armies. Thanks to a recent brilliant campaign by General Toussaint Louverture, they also controlled much of the coastal north, minus the port towns still held by the French. They were still the largest military force in the colony. Exact numbers are hard to come by, but there were certainly tens of thousands of rebels under arms probably over 20,000 and less than 100,000, but it's hard to be more specific than that. In exchange for support and legitimacy, the rebel leadership had taken oaths of loyalty to the King of Spain and accepted commissions as officers in a special auxiliary militia, so rebel-controlled territory was technically Spanish-controlled territory, although, as we've already seen, the reality is somewhat more complicated. Surprisingly, there were also free colonists defecting to the Spanish. This led to a situation in which there were colonial militias made up of white and mixed-race men fighting alongside the rebels, who they had once enslaved and oppressed, the same rebels who had risen up against them and destroyed their way of life and burned their homes only two years earlier. This was simply how things were in Haiti in the 1790s. You can't afford to be picky about your allies when survival is on the line. By now, there was a significant British presence on Haiti as well. After the outbreak of war the previous year, the Redcoats had proceeded slowly and methodically, using their naval superiority to seize port towns on the west coast, where most of Haiti's population lived. They controlled a few decent-sized chunks of territory in the center and south of the country, including the colonial capital of Port-au-Prince. The British had made a very serious commitment to Haiti. The number of British regulars in the colony would ultimately peak at well over 20,000, augmented by local militias raised from defecting colonists. To put that in perspective, that's larger than the Army of Italy was at some points during Napoleon's first Italian campaign. And of course, it took tremendous resources and effort to keep this large force supplied and reinforced from all the way across the Atlantic. The war in Haiti is sometimes dismissed as a sideshow to more important events in Europe, but looking at the resources Britain was willing to put into this fight, it's clear this was quite a bit more than a sideshow to them. In fact, Haiti was such a tantalizing prize that the British were willing to put up with severe losses to secure it. Before they finally left the colony for good, as many as a hundred thousand redcoats would die in Haiti. Thousands died in combat, but the biggest killer was the humble mosquito, carrier of a virus we today call yellow fever. There are two types of yellow fever infections. 
In mild cases, the victim experiences fever, headache, body aches, and nausea, which last for a few days before clearing up. However, in severe cases, the disease progresses to a terrifying second stage. The infected bleed from every orifice, and vomit up thick black dried blood. The disease attacks the internal organs, often leading to jaundice, hence the name yellow fever. High fevers bring delirium. It is excruciatingly painful, and in 18th century Haiti, this severe form of the disease was fatal in the majority of cases. Yellow fever comes from Africa, and like many diseases, there is a hereditary resistance that builds up over generations. So, in the 18th century Caribbean, European-born whites were the most vulnerable. White Creoles, whose families came from the tropics, had some resistance, and people with African blood were the least affected by the disease. Given that yellow fever came to this part of the world on slave ships, you almost have to wonder if God or the universe was passing judgment over European colonialism. All whites in the Caribbean lived in fear of the yellow fever. There are cases of whole military units being nearly wiped out by the disease. This actually happened to one of the ships commanded by Horatio Nelson during the American War of Independence. 140 men out of the ship's complement of 200 were felled by yellow fever within a few weeks. 70% mortality. This was a big reason that every power that fought in Haiti put a strong emphasis on raising local militias to augment their regulars from Europe. They knew any force of Europeans dispatched to the island would eventually be struck by the Yellow Plague, and when that eventuality came, casualties would be heavy. Over 50% was typical. The Caribbean was so notorious for deadly yellow fever outbreaks that some British units mutinied when they learned they were being assigned to Haiti. They considered it a death sentence. I'd like to go into a bit more detail on the climax of last episode, the Proclamation of Emancipation, promulgated by Commissioner Sontenax in August of 1793. It's important to note that all of Sontenax's authority had been delegated to him by the National Convention in Paris. So, anything he undertook under his own initiative was technically provisional, subject to ratification by the convention. For once, the people of Haiti got some good luck. By the time the news of the declaration reached Paris, the ruling Girondin faction had been ousted, and the radical Jacobins were in power. The Girondins were moderate liberals but a big part of their base of support was the merchant classes of the port towns of western France, many of whom depended on the colonial trade for their livelihoods, and thus supported slavery. And so, many of their Girondin representatives in Paris were openly pro-slavery as well, and many others were timid on the issue, worried about alienating their base. The Jacobins were more ideologically radical, and few of their supporters had any financial connection to slavery. Many of them were sympathetic to the cause of emancipation. Some had even been members of abolitionist societies. So, when the news hit Paris, the government was in a much more receptive mood than anyone in Haiti could have guessed. After a short debate, Sontenac's declaration was approved. Not only that, the legislature actually went further and voted to extend the declaration to every French colony. Slavery was now illegal wherever the tricolor flag flew. Legally speaking, probably almost a million people now owed their freedom to Commissioner Sontenax. He had taken up the cause of emancipation out of desperation to save his own skin. This undistinguished and mediocre man is technically one of the greatest emancipators in history up there with Abraham Lincoln, although obviously the true authors of this great reform were the slave rebels, who had paid for it in blood. As I mentioned last episode, General Toussaint Louverture initially believed Sontenac's declaration was some kind of trick, 
In his secret communications with the French, he had always been adamant that the Republicans should adopt total emancipation as their official policy. But he'd assumed convincing them would be a slow process, not a sudden complete 180. Louverture's suspicion would quickly prove unfounded. The person responsible for enforcing this decree was competent, energetic, and most importantly, he absolutely loathed slavery and hated the planters. A 42-year-old general named Etienne Minot de Bisefranc de Laveau, who had recently been appointed governor of the colony. As you might be able to tell from that bombastic name, Laveau was a former aristocrat born to a life of privilege, and groomed for a military career from childhood. Most people in this demographic were hardcore royalists, but Laveau was a committed liberal. He embraced the revolution, and was actually on the more radical end of the political spectrum. His experiences in Haiti seemed to have confirmed his left-wing views. He found the planters to be untrustworthy and avaricious and sympathized with the black population, who he viewed as equal to whites. He held on to this belief even after duty demanded that he lead troops against the rebels. In fact, a big part of the reason he got the job as governor was that he was such a vehement supporter of racial equality. The commissioners wanted to move in that direction, so they made sure to appoint a man they knew would back them up. Under Governor Laveau's command, Republican regulars and remnants of the National Guard marched around French-controlled territory, enforcing emancipation at gunpoint. Under the new regulations, plantation workers were entitled to one quarter of all profits. And, under the watchful eyes of the governor and the sharpened bayonets of his men, the planters were forced to pay out. Now that Louverture had turned on the Spanish, and it become clear that the French had made a serious commitment to emancipation and racial equality, the way was clear for Toussaint to begin working with the Republicans. You might imagine some grand ceremony where Toussaint swore an oath under a tricolor flag, vowing to serve the revolution, and was embraced by his new allies. It would have made for a dramatic scene, but that's not what happened. Remember, he was still playing his game with the Spanish, writing letters to the governor professing his loyalty, so he and his men could continue to receive Spanish gold, weapons, and supplies. Believe it or not, months passed before the Spanish got wise to this. In their defense, communications were so bad, and the situation was so chaotic, it could be hard to tell who was on what side. Commissioner Sontanax had declared emancipation in hopes of changing the game. As we discussed last time, he could see that the momentum of events was leading inexorably towards a French defeat. And so, he decided to do something drastic to change that momentum. It worked. General Louverture brought over 4,000 of the best rebel troops over to the Republican side. More followed. Large segments of the black population switched their allegiances from the Spanish-backed rebels to the French. Only a few years earlier, the tricolor flag had widely been perceived as yet another symbol of slavery, tyranny, and abuse. Sontanax, Laveau, and Louverture were changing that perception. The defection certainly took a lot of wind out of Spain's sails. The Spanish had tried to harness the rebellion for their own purposes. It had been a promising strategy at first, but now it was beginning to unravel. This was compounded by a new Spanish governor, who distrusted the rebels, and preferred to make alliances with the remaining white and mixed-race planters. Given the circumstances, it seems insane to trade away thousands of motivated, effective rebel soldiers for a few hundred militiamen fighting for their own agendas. But apparently, the new governor was a staunch believer in the racial hierarchy. He preferred to fight alongside unreliable whites over his tried and tested black allies. The British effort was stalling as well. Their invasion of Haiti had started strong. They seized coastal towns at will, and were often welcomed by prominent local citizens. 
Their control of the sea gave them a huge advantage. Before the rebellion, most communication and commerce in Haiti was conducted by boat, to avoid using the rugged, treacherous overland routes. So, their control of the sea effectively gave the British a shortcut everywhere that their opponents could not use. But after securing their bases along the coast, the Redcoats hesitated. Some of this caution was probably well warranted, but in retrospect, they should have acted with more urgency. Within a few months of their arrival in Haiti, yellow fever was tearing through the British ranks. British commanders found themselves too preoccupied securing their bases and fighting the disease to push inland with any significant force. And so, things were looking up for the French, despite the fact that they were still surrounded by enemies on all sides and cut off from home. With General Louverture on their side and the revolutionary cause making inroads among the black population, the Republicans could see a glimmer of hope eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. As French Republicans from Europe mingled with their new black allies, the ideas, experiences, and tactics of the two sides mingled as well. Louverture and his men absorbed the new theories of military science coming out of Europe, particularly those pertaining to organization and the ideal of the citizen-soldier. At the beginning of the rebellion, the rebels were more of a loose confederation of many disparate bands. By the mid-1790s, Louverture had built his forces into something resembling a conventional army, with numbered regiments dedicated support units, and a modern general staff. Thanks to French money and equipment, Toussaint finally had access to all three branches of a Napoleonic army, artillery and cavalry as well as infantry. Despite all these changes, the rebel army never totally abandoned its roots as a guerrilla force. They remained masters of rapid movement through the rugged interior, and continued to rely on surprise, infiltration, and concealment. On the battlefield, they used Haiti's rough terrain and unpredictable weather to their advantage, cloaking their movements until they got close enough for a sudden, overwhelming attack. We've talked a lot in past episodes about the character of the new types of armies being raised in Republican France, armies in which the soldiers were expected to be far more self-reliant and self-motivated than European troops of previous generations. This new ethos of the Republican citizen-soldier fit very well with what Toussaint was trying to do in Haiti. From the beginning of the rebellion, he had tried to instill in his men the idea that they were fighting for a great moral cause. Not only to save themselves and their people, but for universal principles like freedom and equality. Just as Napoleon and other Republican generals had discovered in Europe, Louverture had realized that men who were properly motivated to struggle for a cause fought harder and could be asked to do more than men who were fighting out of obligation or narrow self-interest. In Toussaint's words, quote, We do not fight for our fortunes. We will have ample time to think about such matters once we have chased our enemies from our lands, from our homes. We fight for freedom, which is the greatest of riches we can aspire to, and we have to preserve it for ourselves and for our children, our brothers, and our fellow citizens. End quote. So Toussaint was an easy convert to this Republican citizen-soldier rhetoric. After all, he'd basically already discovered this formula for himself. Now, he simply had new vocabulary to describe what he'd already been doing. 
While Louverture molded his forces into a new type of army, he worked to improve himself as well. People often marvel at how a man like Toussaint, with zero prior military experience, was able to emerge so quickly as a talented commander of thousands of men with a strong grasp of tactics and strategy. The biggest reason is the most obvious one. Louverture was very competent, and when he put his mind to doing something, he did it well. But even geniuses need to learn somewhere. In Toussaint's case, at the beginning of the rebellion, he found a former militia officer, who he hired as a tutor in military affairs and saber-fencing. He also read voraciously, and through his new French allies, he now had access to the same modern military manuals that the European powers used to train their officers. In 1794, he got a new instructor, Governor Etienne Laveau. Almost as soon as Louverture entered French service, he and Laveau began to form a personal bond. They made quite a pair, the ex-aristocrat born in a Burgundian chateau and the ex-slave born on a sugar plantation. Their origins and life experiences could not have been further apart. But the revolution had made them legally equals, a state of affairs which both men heartily supported. Those shared convictions proved to be the basis for a deep friendship. Letters between the two men are so affectionate that they're almost embarrassing to read. In 1796, Louverture wrote to Laveau, quote, There are, no doubt, pure friendships, but I am not convinced that any surpass the one I have with you, or are more sincere. I will risk death to defend you. If ever I were to succumb, I would take with me the sweet satisfaction of having defended a father, a virtuous friend, and the embodiment of freedom. End quote. There was no hypocrisy in Laveau. He never condescended to Toussaint or his other black allies, or treated them any differently from the white or mixed-race population. To him, black Haitians were just ordinary men and women who had been trapped in a terrible situation which Laveau felt duty-bound to help remedy. Louverture was quite frank in explaining that the basis of their friendship was Laveau's, quote, exceptional love of black people, end quote, and his, quote, not treating black people as children, but directing and encouraging them towards the public good, end quote. As we discussed last episode, Toussaint knew it was impossible to achieve his aims alone, that to achieve the total liberation of Haiti, the rebels would need partners. In Laveau, he had finally found a partner he could trust. The army's new ideas and new tactics could not have been introduced at a better time. The war in Haiti was changing. In the early phases of the conflict, most of the fighting was carried out by amateurs, militias, and national guardsmen who were seeing combat for the first time, and insurgents who were only recently freed from slavery. The few regular soldiers involved were often inexperienced and disorganized. It was pure chaos. Often it was hard to tell who controlled what territory. The combatants' commitment to the cause was often shaky, it was not uncommon for people to surrender without a fight, or even switch sides. But by 1794, both Britain and Spain had brought a sizable number of disciplined regular troops into the fight. The French had been reinforced as well. Militias on every side now had years of experience of war, and their allegiances and their hatreds had hardened. The front lines were less fluid. The Spanish and British invaders were well ensconced in the parts of the country they controlled. Their positions anchored in fortified towns and strong points. The upshot was, conditions were much less favorable to the guerrilla tactics Louverture had used so successfully in 1792 and 3. If the enemy is determined to hold on to a fortified position, has enough supplies to withstand a siege, and enough men to prevent infiltration, 
the only way to take the position is by direct assault. Unfortunately for Louverture and his men, that type of straight-up fight plays to all the strengths of trained regular troops, and exposes all the weaknesses of a guerrilla army. This is why all throughout history, all over the world, successful guerrilla leaders have always avoided these types of battles, unless absolutely necessary. So, Louverture's forces were becoming more professionalized out of necessity. The armies of the coalition were stalled, but still held huge swaths of Haitian territory. The task facing the Republicans was clear. To repel the invaders, they would need to retake that territory. That would mean piercing the enemy's front lines in direct attacks and storming their strongpoints. Toussaint saw what his army would need to triumph in this new phase of the war. To defeat European-style armies in a European-style war, he needed to understand European doctrines. He drilled his men in conventional formation fighting and in how to counter it. He organized the bravest and most effective soldiers from each infantry regiment into grenadier companies, which specialized in assault tactics. The order for the grenadiers to attack, grenadier à l'assaut in Creole, came to be adopted as a kind of war cry. Apparently, even today, you can still hear it chanted at political protests and sporting events. Louverture is often compared to Napoleon, and looking at his command style, there are similarities. For one thing, both men shared the habit of dictating multiple letters to multiple secretaries at the same time, which is certainly not a common practice. Both men favored the offensive, prioritizing aggression and mobility over static defense. Both men saw politics and war as linked. Like Bonaparte, Toussaint was a hands-on leader, constantly traveling around the country with a mobile headquarters staff. His admirers credited him with an almost supernatural ability to always be at the center of the action. In fact, as we've discussed, Some of his followers did literally believe that he had some spiritual power that gave him superhuman perception and the ability to travel around the country at will. With his hard-driving personality and superior horsemanship skills, General Louverture often rode out alone ahead of his bodyguards. Many Haitians would have had the opportunity to encounter him more or less one-on-one without even a token force of guards standing between the great general and the people. The people of Haiti had never known any type of government but tyranny by a distant elite. Now, here was a leader who had come from among them, and, even in his exalted position, he was comfortable to mingle freely with even the lowest peasants. It's no surprise they came to love Papa Toussaint. In the early phases of the rebellion, Louverture rarely led from the front. He handled strategy and organization, and provided tactical guidance, but left frontline leadership to others. But as the war moved into this new phase in 1794, Toussaint was increasingly fearless on the battlefield. It seems he understood that in these hard-fought pitched battles, with his men fighting tooth and nail to seize fortified strongpoints from the enemy, it was important for morale purposes that they see their general near the action, sword in hand. Or perhaps it had simply taken some time for his fencing skills to develop to the point where he felt comfortable wielding a saber in the face of the enemy. His friend and commander, Governor Laveau, repeatedly warned him to be more cautious and not risk his life in battle, but Toussaint refused. In one engagement, he led a bayonet charge with an arm in a sling from an injury suffered earlier in the day. In another battle, he was so close to an explosion that the shockwave knocked out some of his teeth. Some people have claimed this was actually the derivation of his surname, that the opening referred to by Louverture was a gap in his teeth. A funny idea, but we know he had been using that name long before this incident. Over the course of his career, 
Louverture was wounded in action on 17 separate occasions. On paper, Toussaint's enemies looked weak, the British were racked by yellow fever, and seemed not to know how to respond to the unexpectedly stiff resistance. The Spanish had lost a huge swath of territory and many of their best troops when Toussaint defected, and their government had only limited resources to devote to this campaign. The coalition had lost the momentum in Haiti. But for the French to seize the momentum themselves, they would have to go on the offensive and push the enemy out of those fortified positions. In these assaults, Louverture's men fought with almost suicidal bravery. At the Battle of San Rafael, the Republican cavalry charged a Spanish position consisting of entrenchments and heavy artillery. They were repulsed with heavy casualties, reformed, charged again, and were repulsed again, then reformed a third time, and charged yet again. This time, General Louverture led the attack himself, and the position was finally taken. In several engagements, Toussaint's grenadiers stormed enemy fortifications with ladders, while under fire from the walls. At the Battle of Fort Churchill in 1797, the grenadiers stormed the fort with ladders four times. Imagine how exposed you would be, climbing a ladder with the enemy firing down from above. It must have been terrifying, but more often than not, the Grenadiers triumphed. In a report to the French government, General Louverture stated that between 1794 and 1798, he and his soldiers had won more than 50 victories over the coalition. This war is not well documented, so it's possible he was exaggerating, but that certainly seems to be in the ballpark. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The army was fighting in a lot of conventional pitched battles, but that didn't mean the guerrilla war was over. Louverture's men remained experts in infiltration. They had learned that was no longer a viable strategy to actually seize territory, but it was very effective as a method of gathering intelligence and harassing the enemy. British officers in Haiti complained that their men were afraid to leave their barracks because they felt wherever they went, the enemy was always watching and always ready to strike. One favorite tactic was for a small group of guerrillas to approach an enemy garrison at night, get close, and start firing pot shots towards the barracks. Once the enemy regulars mustered to fight off the attack, the guerrillas would melt away into the countryside, leaving the enemy to spend the rest of the night blundering around in the dark, chasing ghosts. Another tactic was to break into an enemy camp and steal their horses or equipment. Not only were these supplies desperately needed by Louverture's army, it sowed fear among the enemy to know that the guerrillas could penetrate their perimeter at will. Who could sleep easy, wondering if this was the night the thieves would come back with machetes? Larger groups of guerrillas specialized in attacking enemy supply trains. A lot of the salted meat and fish that sustained Toussaint's army had been packaged in Spanish Santo Domingo, or British Jamaica. These ambushes were perhaps Louverture's most reliable source of supplies. 
Despite the best efforts of competent leaders like Governor Laveau, the French colonial administration was so weak that it barely existed. Between the rebellion and external invasion, the colonial government had almost been entirely destroyed in 1792 and 3. Its fortunes had improved since then, but it still only controlled about half the country, and was almost totally cut off from France by the Royal Navy. The government was simply not in a position to be able to provide food and supplies to its army on any consistent basis. According to Louverture's correspondence, at one point, his troops went three months without a shipment of food or supplies from the government. But, no matter how desperate the situation got, soldiers in Toussaint's army were expected to pay for any food they took from the local people. Looters were shot. The British called him a bandit, but his army only ever stole from the Redcoats, the Spanish, and the Planters. When supplies from the government came up short, and he couldn't make up the difference by stealing from the enemy, Toussaint made purchases from foreign merchants. On several occasions, he resorted to ordering his regiments into the cane fields to harvest sugar which they could then trade for sustenance. These men had come so far and achieved so much since seizing their freedom back in 1791. It must have been tremendously difficult for them to swallow their pride and go back to cutting cane, even if it was only temporary. Back in Europe, Haiti had become a subject of concern and discussion within the halls of power in London. The British had dispatched their forces to Haiti under the impression it would be an easy prize. Now, it was coming up on three years since the invasion, and not only had the Redcoats failed to seize the colony, they were actually losing ground to the Republicans. Thousands of lives had been lost in the effort, and millions of pounds spent troops and resources that could have been put to good use elsewhere. Clearly, Britain's leaders had to make a decision. It was time to either cut their losses, or admit that their commanders on the ground needed reinforcements to finish the job. They chose the latter. A new expeditionary force began to assemble in Ireland, nearly 30,000 men and 200 ships. This would be the largest overseas expedition in British history. It dwarfed the forces which had conquered much of India a generation earlier. Fortunately for Toussaint Louverture and his allies, these troops were not all bound for Haiti. Some would be diverted to invade other French colonies. But this was not a positive development for the Republican cause, to say the least. However, the news from Europe was not all bad. Around the same time the British government was debating its involvement in Haiti, French troops were breaking out of the foothills of the Pyrenees and pouring in to northern and eastern Spain. The Spanish armies were reeling, and their heartland was under threat. Fearing total defeat, the Spanish government capitulated to France's terms. Spain was out of the war, and not only that, under the terms of the treaty, most of the territory of Spanish Santo Domingo would be ceded to the French Republic. By the stroke of a pen, Haiti had suddenly grown almost 50% larger, and many of Louverture's most powerful enemies were suddenly out of the picture. I'm sure some of the Spanish troops and colonial officials in Haiti were disappointed. Many were probably relieved. But for the former rebels who had remained loyal to Spain, this was a disaster. They had backed the wrong horse. Thanks to the treaty, they would have no role in shaping the future of their country. These black auxiliary troops had fought well and shed their blood for Spain, and the Spanish had paid them back with indifference. But I'll give the Spanish credit for offering to evacuate any auxiliaries who wanted to leave Haiti, rather than simply abandoning them to their fate. But even now, the Spanish didn't quite trust their black allies. Colonial officials worried that a large concentration of black men with extensive military knowledge, experience of self-government, 
and a documented history of rebellion against white authority might pose a danger. And so, the auxiliaries were scattered all over Spanish America, in tiny groups, too small to cause any trouble. They were dispatched mostly to small, sleepy garrison towns, where they were expected to live and farm, while remaining available as military reservists. Georges Biasu, Toussaint's former commanding officer, ended up in San Agustin, which we know today as St. Augustine, Florida. He died in 1801, killed by one of his own men while trying to break up a brawl. But even with the Spanish out of the picture, the fighting only intensified. The Great British Expedition finally arrived from Ireland in the spring of 1796, with orders from Prime Minister William Pitt to go on the attack and seize the rest of the colony in a single, decisive offensive. But anyone with experience of the West Indies could have told the British government that this was the wrong time to bring so many white soldiers to the Caribbean. The expedition arrived at the height of yellow fever season. Before the British could even begin organizing their great offensive, men began dropping like flies. By the summer, many British regiments were already down to 50% strength before even making contact with the enemy. They had underestimated the Yellow Fever, and they had underestimated Toussaint Louverture. With every engagement, the Republican troops became more professional. They were experienced and well-organized, and their forces now included artillery and cavalry. These former insurgents were now fully capable of going toe-to-toe with well-trained British regulars. The Redcoats made sorties out of their coastal strongholds, but even with their new reinforcements, they were still unable to sustain a push into the interior. The climate, the terrain, the yellow fever, the guerrillas, the fierce resistance of the Republicans, it was all too much. To the British, This was an inhospitable, alien land, where every road led to death. The fighting between British and Republican forces in Haiti would continue for over a year, but the writing was on the wall. Haiti was simply too tough a nut to crack. The British could not build up and maintain a force big enough to pacify this rugged country, far from home, fiercely defended by its inhabitants. As we've discussed in past episodes, as the War of the First Coalition dragged on, the policies of Prime Minister Pitt and his Tory government were increasingly under fire in Parliament and the press. Public sentiment began to turn against the war. The government's critics seized on the situation in Haiti as a prime example of Pitt's incompetence and of the general folly of the conflict. It seemed the West Indies were nothing but a black hole, into which the Tories poured money and human lives to no discernible effect. Pitt and his ministers were feeling the pressure. In early 1797, they ordered two of the expedition's senior officers to return to London to make a report in person. They painted a bleak picture. Victory in Haiti was more elusive than ever. The army's morale was dangerously low. The enemy was growing in strength every day, while the British only grew weaker. The Haitian Republicans had grown so powerful that the British were now worried they might export their revolution to Jamaica and other British possessions. The officers recommended the government withdraw British forces and negotiate some kind of truce with the Republicans before the situation spun totally out of control. The government wanted to attempt to hold on to a few strategic ports, to serve as bases for the Royal Navy and footholds for a potential future intervention, in case the situation in Haiti changed. However, this proved untenable. In the summer of 1798, the British commander and Toussaint Louverture signed a ceasefire. The British agreed to evacuate all Haitian territory, and in exchange, Louverture agreed not to foment rebellion in Jamaica. 
The idea that Toussaint could do anything in Jamaica is a bit absurd. Jamaica is across just short of 300 miles or 500 kilometers of water, controlled by the Royal Navy. But by this point, Louverture's reputation was such that the British believed he was capable of almost anything. Against all odds, the Republicans had done it. In 1793, French control of the colony had been reduced to a handful of coastal strongholds and a few square miles of poor rural countryside. Almost the entire country had been overrun by France's enemies. It had taken five bloody years, but the invasion was now over. Unfortunately, this did not mean peace for Haiti, merely a brief pause in the ongoing crisis which had started before the invasions and would continue long after. The country was in ruins. Society itself had almost totally unraveled. Exact numbers are hard to come by, but perhaps as many as a quarter million Haitians died during the fighting. If true, that would be somewhere around half the total black population of the island. Granted, that's a high estimate. But we're talking about staggering losses here. The country had paid a terrible price. But some good had come out of this catastrophe. Slavery was abolished. Every man, woman, and child in Haiti was free. And not only that, they were legally equal. The racial caste system was gone as well. And there were now black and mixed-race people holding real positions of power. The only legal category was citizen, and it included everyone. Toussaint Louverture had achieved his great ambition. The dream, which only a few years earlier had seemed impossible even to his fellow rebel commanders, was now reality. At least, it had been achieved on paper. It still remained to be seen whether or not this vision could endure in a shattered country, where deep resentments still lurked under the surface. We'll leave things there for now. Next episode, we'll see Toussaint Louverture attempt to build a new Haiti from the ashes of war and rebellion. And we'll see how France viewed these changes. One last note before we go. On March 18th through 21st of 2021, there will be a conference on Napoleonic history. Napoleon and his legacy, warfare, politics, and society. I will be appearing on a panel on the 19th about podcasting about this era. But, more importantly, there will be a ton of much more experienced and qualified people there as well. Some of the best academics working in the field today will be speaking. If you're interested, you can attend virtually on Zoom. And it's free, but you do have to register. You can search for it on Eventbrite, or look for a link in the description of this episode. I hope to see you there. Anyway, until next time, thanks for listening.